Okay, at each of these, there'll be a little bit of review towards the beginning. So just a reminder, our goal for Lent, our goal for Lent and into Easter is to simply tell the story. Because if we don't know the story, then Jesus at the center of the story doesn't make sense. Right, so I talked about how D-Day on Wednesday, I talked about D-Day, and if, you know, the Allies land at Normandy in France on June 6, 1944, and if there is no war leading up to this point, then their landing in France it looks silly, it doesn't make sense. But when you know the whole story, then their landing, their arrival to France to rescue, to save, it becomes all the more powerful, especially if you're in the war, if you're in it. Right, so when we talk about Jesus, if we don't know the story that he's part of a much bigger story than just his life, if we don't know the story, then his life doesn't really make sense. His arrival, his landing on earth, it seems a little extra, a little dramatic to us. But once we know the story anyway, the kerygma, the proclamation of what God has done in the person of Jesus, if we know the whole story, then the whole story becomes all the more powerful. The story is four parts. The goodness of creation, sin and its consequences, God's response to sin and our response to what God has done. These four things make up this one big story called the kerygma. And when we know the kerygma, when we know the story, the power of Jesus's arrival and what God has done in his person, his death and his resurrection, it, it comes alive in a new way. So that we can say with St. Paul to the Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. The gospel, the good news, but not just good news. We're talking about the kind of news that changes everything about the way that you see your life, everything about the way that you live your life. It's explosive in the best kind of way that, that doesn't scatter you, but actually it brings everything together for you in your life so that suddenly everything clicks and you can see things clearly to understand why you exist, where you're meant to go and how you get there. And when you understand this, you're brought to a place of healing, which we know, we see this in the gospels. People, when they encounter Jesus, he heals them in a physical way, yes, but above all, in a spiritual way that they're brought to a place of freedom in God that they didn't know that they had. This is our goal for Lent and into Easter, is to come to this place of, of God's power so that we can be overwhelmed and brought to a place to entrust everything to Jesus. I mentioned uh, on Ash Wednesday, every week there'll be an outline in the bulletin or on extra pieces of paper. So if that's helpful for you, you take a bulletin ahead of time. Yes, I'm telling you to take a bulletin ahead of time to read the bulletin during the homily, right? I wouldn't say that to you otherwise, but if it's helpful for you, you can do that. Now this week and next week, we're getting into the first part of the kerygma, the goodness of creation, to talk about what the, the worldview of the Bible, especially of Genesis, looks like. How does the Bible look at life? What's, what's the outlook? What's the goal that, that is revealed to us in the book of Genesis? Now, before we get into the book of Genesis, just a little bit of, of an explanation of this, that this part of the book of Genesis is not trying to communicate to you science or scientific facts. It's not trying to communicate to you history in the way that you and I typically communicate history. It doesn't, doesn't tell us anything about what actually happened or what didn't actually happen. But instead, what the, this part of the book of Genesis is doing is it sees this, this reality that's, that's playing out and it's saying, how can I communicate this, this, this amazing, magnificent act of God that's taking place? And so we can talk about how there's this elevated way of, of communicating that typically science and history can't communicate. They certainly can communicate tr truth and facts. 
but, but there's a way that, that they can't communicate to the wholeness of a story. And this is what this part of Genesis is doing. So we could call it something like poetic narrative, communicating truth, but in a way that, that straight facts can't communicate, communicating truth in a poetic kind of way. Right, when you listen to a music on the radio, or to a song on the radio, or when you listen to a poem, you know that the words or the lyrics are not necessarily gonna be factual, but you know that what's in there is a truth that the artist is trying to communicate. So too, in this part of the book of Genesis, we can, we can understand that maybe this is factual, maybe it's not. That's not the point of what's being communicated, but instead, there's like a poem that's being communicated to us, and for us to try to grasp what is the truth that's being communicated. All right, so that's what's going on. So now we're just gonna kind of slowly walk through the stories of creation that we see in Genesis chapter one especially, but then also looking into Genesis chapter two. So first, what is the worldview? The worldview is that there is one God. That one God in Genesis chapter one and in Genesis chapter two has two different names or two different titles. If you read Genesis one, you saw that God is referred to as God. That word in Hebrew is Elohim. Elohim refers to God as this cosmic, distant, all-powerful, all-knowing creator of the universe, creator of everything. That he is all-powerful, that he is all-knowing, and that he creates simply because he wants to. In Genesis chapter 2, especially beginning in verse 4, you may have noticed that God's name shifts from God to the Lord God, and Lord is in all capital letters. In Hebrew, that Lord is Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. This is the divine name that God reveals to Moses when he appears to him in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. It's as though this, it's because it's the same God, right? It's as though this cosmic, distant, all-powerful God, what does he do? He draws near to introduce himself to humanity. He draws near. And when you introduce yourself to someone, right, before you introduce yourself, you're like a distant person, right? If, in fact, if you meet someone and you intentionally don't tell them your name, you're intending to remain a bit distant from them. By giving your name to someone, you're expressing the beginning of a relationship. This is what God is doing in, in, in Genesis chapter 2. He draws near to his creatures and his name is revealed to us in the scriptures because it reveals that this cosmic, all-powerful, all-knowing God desires a relationship with his creation. He desires to draw close, to be like a loving father with his creation. The reason that the, the, the name Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, is in all capital letters is because the Jewish people, the Hebrews, they see that the name is so sacred, so holy, that out of reverence for it, they don't want to pronounce it. And so every time you read the Bible in the Old Testament, anytime you see the word Lord in all capital letters, that is the sacred name that, that they don't want to pronounce. And so we keep it in our Christian Bibles out of respect for our Jewish brothers and sisters, understanding that, that they see this as sacred and we too hold it to be sacred. Right? So that's, that's, that's the one God who's revealed in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. We see that this one God creates everything and he does it out of nothing. God has no starting material. He doesn't need any because he's that powerful. He creates everything out of nothing. He does it freely. No one's forcing him to, no one's coercing him to. No one's trying to convince God like, oh, this would be a good idea. No, he does it of his own free choice and he does it without effort. It doesn't cost him anything to create everything that exists. Why does he do it? He does it because he loves, right? God creates because he loves. There's, there's an abundance of love in his being and he wants to share that love, so he chooses to create. 
so that he can communicate that love with his creatures. And everything that God makes is good because the God of Genesis is good. The line you see over and over again in Genesis chapter 1, God creates something and then what? He saw that it was good. He creates something and he saw that it was good until finally everything is created. And after that point, it says, he saw that it was very good. The God of Genesis is good. And so everything he makes is good, or at least was good in the beginning. And the highlight of everything that he makes is the human person. If you have your Bible with you, open up to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. So there are different translations of the Bible, and some, some are a little bit easier for us to read and understand, and some are a little bit more uh, uh, literal in their translation. And so understand that as I read what I, the, the version that I have, your wording might be slightly different, but it doesn't change the substance of what's in there. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what do we see? We see that God creates the human person in his own image and likeness. What does that mean? Well, God is invisible, right? He doesn't have a body, so he can't be seen. He creates an earth that is made up of visible material things, visible material creatures. And so he wants one of his creatures to be able to represent him on earth. And so this is what he does for the human person. We are the only creatures, the human person, you and I, we're the only creatures who have the ability to represent God on earth. And it's not just that we have the ability of it. If God gives it, he expects it to be used. So that means he expects you and I to represent him here on earth. Just to think about that, I wonder how much you and I think about this, that my primary purpose, your primary purpose, is to represent God on earth. This is an incredible thing. And so it makes sense then that right after he creates the, the man and the woman, he gives them dominion over all of creation. He commissions them not to have domination, right? Not just to do whatever they want with the earth, but to have dominion because after all, it's his creation. And so if it's his creation, then we who are his representatives should approach creation in the same way that he approaches creation. And that doesn't mean that we elevate creation, elevate the animals and the plants to be of the same value as you and I. No, no, no. The Bible is very clear that the human person is uniquely loved by God in a way that, that goes above the rest of creation. We have dominion over it. We have the ability to rule over it. But at the same time, we should not abuse that dominion that God gives to us. It is still his after all. And so we are stewards of his creation. And so we are called to have a responsibility to care for it in an appropriate way, even, even while we still use it, it for God's purposes, for, for our benefit. Absolutely. What else does it mean? To be made in the image and likeness of God, it means that you and I have a capacity to reason. We have an ability to think critically about things, to look at a situation and to assess it, to analyze it, and to make a decision based on what we think about it, and more importantly, based on what God thinks about it. Rather than relying on our feelings and our emotions and, and just kind of going with where they lead us, instead, sometimes we have to recognize, my feelings are telling me this, but my thoughts, my mind, which is the thing that God gave to me, 
tells me that I should not, I should set aside my feelings. Not that they're unimportant, but sometimes we have to deny our feelings, deny our emotions for the sake of thinking critically about any given situation or action or person. But this is what it is to be made in the image and likeness of God. We see also that human beings are free. Freedom does not mean lawlessness. And this is a problem that we run into even in our country outside of religion, right? That we live in the land of the free and so I should be able to do whatever I want. That's not freedom. Freedom, uh, that is lawlessness. Freedom is the ability to choose what I ought to choose, to choose what is good. This is my freedom. I look at other animals and I see how they're slaves to instincts. So they can't help it, right? So for example, if, if, I, if you all came to mass this morning and there was a big plate of gr freshly grilled steaks sitting up here in the sanctuary, right? If we brought a bunch of animals in, what would they do? You would have to restrain them and do everything you could to keep them from eating at the stakes. They would, if, if you tried to block their way, they would try to find another way because their instincts are telling them, there's fresh meat, I gotta eat it. Whereas for you, you would come in and maybe you would want to do that, right? Nonetheless, you would think, okay, that's probably not good for me to eat right now because Father probably wants those for some other purpose. You might still recognize, like, I desire that because we do, as humans, we still have instincts. But our freedom gives us the ability to deny our instincts for the sake of choosing what we ought to choose, for the sake of choosing what is good. And what is the purpose of this freedom that God gives to us? Ultimately, it's love, because only a free person can truly love. If we were all slaves to our instincts, if we were all robots, we could not actually love God, and we couldn't really even receive his love because we wouldn't know any different. But because we have this freedom, we have the ability to be loved by God and to love him in return. And this is why we exist. What else do we see? Male and female, he created them. What does that mean? A male on his own does not exhaust what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. A female on her own does not exhaust what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. The two are of equal value and equal dignity, although different. Right? They have the same value and together, working together, they reveal to the world what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. One really big misunderstanding and, and misinterpretation of something comes in Genesis chapter 2. So in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, my translation says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that, a man, that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Other translations say a suitable partner. This is something that the, the word in Hebrew is ezer. So this word is not used a lot in the Bible, but every time it's used in the Bible, this word ezer, it's referring to vitally important divine assistance that only God can provide. So when God says, it's not good for the man to be alone, I will ezer, I will provide divine godly assistance for him. The next thing he does is create the woman. Right, so to understand that the woman is made by God as something that only he can make and as something that only he can provide, which is his own assistance. So that when the woman is given to the man, it is given to him as though God himself is coming to the man to aid him and support him. Right? We live in a world where this has not always been understood properly, where, where women oftentimes have been treated as though they're less valuable than men. And this is not at all what the Bible reveals. 
But instead, what the Bible reveals, what the Bible reveals is what the world needs, which is healthy men and women side by side, being mature, healthy adults working together rather than fighting and competing with each other and trying to see who can be more powerful or who can, who can dominate over the other. Instead, to work side by side, complementing each other, showing the world what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God, representing God on earth. This is what the world needs. And so to understand that as we approach each other, men, as you approach women, and women, as you approach men, to approach each other with a spirit of reverence and gratitude, recognizing that the person across from you is the very person that God has given to you, whether you're married to this person or not, that this is the person that God has given to you to aid you so that together you can reveal what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God. This is incredibly important. I think it's probably especially incredibly important for women to understand that this is your value in the eyes of God. Men, you share this as well, but our, our culture, our society throughout history has naturally shown it to you. Right? But nonetheless, maybe you need to know it too, that your role is the same. It is to be divine assistance for the people around you, especially for the women. Okay, moving on. Genesis chapter 1, verses 29 to 30. It says this, And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed, which is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. Right? This reminds us that we, along with all creatures, are, are creatures that we are dependent beings, that we have needs that on our own we cannot fulfill. But it also shows us what God says, I have given to you. It shows that God cares for his creatures, and so he provides for their needs. He provides for those things that we need that we cannot satisfy on our own. This is what, what it shows us. It also shows us what is the food that he provides. Food from plants. When you eat from plants, the plants don't die. Right? And the, the point of this is not to say that we should all be vegetarians. That's not the point by any means. But the point is to say that in paradise, in the beginning, death was not part of God's plan. God did not plan. He did not want death to come about. And so in the garden, in paradise, there was no death. Okay, now last, to finish the creation story in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. He made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work, which he had done in creation. Right? So God works for six days. And then on the seventh day, he rests. You were made in the image and likeness of God. That is to say that you represent, you are a living breathing, representative of God here on earth. So what God does in heaven, you are meant to do on earth. God rests for a day. You and I are made to rest for a day, to have time for leisure, where we don't have to produce anything. We don't have to accomplish anything. We don't have to set any records. We're made for this. And if we don't do it, there's something in us that will never be truly satisfied because we're not living out of that place of being made in the image and likeness of God. This is something our society, our current culture has lost entirely. I know for a lot of people, people even who come to mass on Sunday, they come to mass and they immediately go and get their chores done, trying to either catch up from what they missed during the week or get ahead of the week ahead of them. You and I, we struggle as a society to truly rest 
on the Lord's Day. Now, it doesn't mean that we should just like sit on our couches and do nothing all day long. But it is to say, we should reflect on this. What are the things that give me joy, that give me energy? What are the activities that when I'm done with them, I actually find myself feeling more filled up than exhausted, more filled up than when I started? Those are the kinds of things that are meant for this day, the Lord's Day. Things that are leisurely, that are good, because as we engage in those things, it prepares us to work for the rest of the week, absolutely. But more than anything, it helps us to live in our identity, made in the image and likeness of God. Right? Incredibly, incredibly important. Okay, so all of that, right? One God who is good, everything he makes is good. The human person is the highlight, made in his image and likeness, to live out of that place. Some questions for us to reflect on as we move forward before we get into next week, which next week, honestly, to me, I think it's the most fun of the weeks. There's something, we look at God in a, in a different way, in a big, majestic, grand way. And it's, it's, it's a lot of fun, it's a lot of excitement. But until we get to that point, let's just reflect on this. The first thing, do you understand that you have incredible value to God? That you matter to Him? Not, not like y'all, but that you personally, individually, have incredible value to God. That you individually, personally, matter to Him. He has made you with a purpose, and that purpose is to represent him here on earth. Do you believe that God is good? I think a lot of people, we struggle with this. Some of us maybe come to Mass because we're more afraid of God's punishments than anything, or we do the right things because we're more afraid of God's punishments than anything. And that's not necessarily a bad reason to do something because we, we don't want to be punished by God, but how much better if we did the right things, if we came to Mass, if we entered into this relationship with God because we know that He's so good and He made us and we are good so that we can share in this beautiful relationship of goodness with each other. Do you believe this? For your homework for the week, just one simple passage to read. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Two verses. To read those, we'll talk more about them next week at the end of the homily, but to go home and read those, and in the meantime, to reflect on these questions as we prepare, as we continue to enter into the story, the story of God's goodness, the story of God's power, the story of what God has done in the person of his son, Jesus.